Hello, you're listening to Stanford MedCast, Stanford CME's podcast where we bring you insights from the world's leading physicians and scientists. If you're new here, consider subscribing to listen to more free episodes coming your way. I am your host, Dr. Ruth Adiria. Thanks for tuning in. This episode is part of the COVID-19 mini-series addressing up-to-date insights on COVID-19. In today's conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Anne Liu. Dr. Anne Liu is a specialist in allergy, immunology, and infectious diseases, and is a clinical associate professor of pediatrics and medicine at Stanford University. Thanks for chatting with me today, Anne. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak, and I look forward to our discussion, Ruth. So today we are discussing a highly complex topic, and I know that we cannot cover all things immunomodulators and COVID in the time we have, but I'm very pleased to have you here to share some of your insights on this topic area. So I thought a great place for us to start would be for you to help set the stage for our discussion. Can you provide a high-level overview of immunology as it relates to our discussion today? Human immunology, as anybody who has studied the immune system can tell you, is an incredibly intricate and complex system with lots of redundancies and feedback loops and internal counter-regulation. There's often a study that will say the opposite of the study that you're looking at will say under certain controlled conditions, and usually that's cells in a dish or mice with a certain phenotype, and so it can be really hard to sort out. So I'll try to talk about what we generally think is going on, knowing that there's going to be a lot out there that is contradictory, especially at this stage of our understanding of COVID. So when we think of inflammation, sometimes there's an implied dichotomy of too much or too little with inflammation measured on just a single axis. In fact, the immune system can deploy many different types of inflammation that can produce a lot of different outcomes when acting alone or in combination. For respiratory viral infections, including influenza, other coronaviruses, parainfluenza viruses, adenoviruses, things that are common, we need the immune system to turn on certain pathways to effectively control the virus. But unchecked activation of these same pathways can then harm the host, that is the infected person. In addition, activation of other pathways can be helpful if they're finely tuned, but can also lead to broad destruction and death. Some viral infections become lethal because of the inflammatory response that is triggered by the virus, but then continues even after the virus seems to have been brought under control. So medicine has a very long history of using immunosuppressants to try to affect the immune system to reduce the inflammation during infections. But in respiratory viral infections, I would say that the result has probably been more failures than successes. And the timing of these responses probably is key to whether they're helpful or harmful. And a pathway that's helpful early on could be harmful if it's triggered or active late in the infection. And in COVID, one of the early observations about the immunologic response in COVID came from critically ill patients who exhibited impressively high levels of inflammation. And mortality was higher in these hospitalized patients who had really high levels of markers of inflammation, including C-reactive protein and interleukin-6 or IL-6. 
And the medical community really quickly went for therapies to dampen the immune system. But now it's actually, not surprisingly, turning out to be much more complicated than that. When it comes to COVID, how do we think this early response is taking place? What seems to be key in the early response in COVID is production of a group of molecules called interferons. Their production is triggered by innate viral sensors upon viral entry into cells via the ACE2 receptor. There are several classes of interferons, type 1 and type 3 interferons that are the most relevant to respiratory viral infections. And type 1 interferons drive the antiviral responses through activation of other pathways, upregulating transcription of other cytokines, stimulating antiviral activity of effector cells to eliminate the virus, and promoting antibody generation and memory formation. And the antibody generation is a hot topic because it's something that's easily measurable to see if somebody has been infected. And that's just one of the outcomes of this response. You mentioned that the early response around COVID has to do with interferons. And so what are your thoughts around if they are produced early, what are the implications of that for an infection? We think that early production of interferons, as soon as the virus enters the host, may be needed to get control of the virus to reduce right viral replication and prevent future so subsequent damage to tissues. If the interferon response doesn't happen early, it's possible that viral replication gets to a point where then it becomes hard to control. And not only are the interferons turned on, a whole host of other inflammatory responses are turned on. This is somewhat of an oversimplification, but there have been studies showing that people who have more severe disease and bad outcomes seem to have an impaired interferon response, especially early on, and they seem to have much more non-interferon-type inflammation, including production of IL-6 and TNF-alpha, which is tumor necrosis factor alpha, another pro-inflammatory cytokine, and a whole host of other inflammatory signals. So we think that if you can produce an interferon response early on, and then get control of the virus and then shut it off, shut off the virus and the interferon response, then the host may have a mild or asymptomatic disease. If the interferon response is not turned on early, then viral replication happens and starts to damage tissues, spreads in the body, and may lead to then a widespread inflammatory response that is more nonspecific which also includes interferons, but a whole host of other inflammatory cytokines. There have been also a number of reports on how the virus itself is uniquely adapted to suppress the interferon response. And this is research that extends from the first SARS virus and MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And those viruses have also been shown to impair the host interferon response to some degree. And this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, has quite a number of adaptations that suppress the host interferon response. It really triggers multiple mechanisms to evade host detection by preventing interferon production. And that may be one reason that people don't have symptoms even as the virus is taking hold and replicating because of these evasion mechanisms. And then things then go downhill after the virus has had a chance to replicate. 
So is this where the concept of immunomodulators as a mechanism to treat COVID comes in? If so, can you talk about what are immunomodulators? And then we can dive into the different types. In this context, immunomodulators are potential therapeutics that work by modifying the host immune response in contrast to medications that target the virus itself. So the thought of using immunomodulators comes from the concern that this unchecked inflammation, especially later in disease, is what is causing the damage, causing all the problems as opposed to the virus replicating itself. It is also in the context of thinking once the virus gets going, we need something to dampen the immune system as well as act on the virus itself. So the group of medications that target the virus itself include things like remdesivir, possibly lopinavir, ritonavir, or at least people have looked at it for that, vivipravir, and monoclonal antibodies that target the spike protein or other components of the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. Convalescent plasma probably falls in this category since we speculate that the mechanism of action is binding the virus directly. Immunomodulators, though, target the human immune system to either augment or impair some function of how the human body responds to infection or inflammation. The first group, those that augment the human immune system, include things like interferons that we can actually administer as medications intended to assist with the endogenous innate antiviral immunity with a boost of these antiviral cytokines, which could be particularly important when dealing with a virus that has specific mechanisms to disable the endogenous interferon pathway to evade detection. But again, the timing may turn out to be really critical as to when these interferons are administered. And then the second group, those that impair some function of how the human body responds to infection or inflammation, are a much larger group of agents that suppress some pathway in the immune response. And some of these may prove to be useful for the later stage of COVID. We are, I think, cautious about using them early in COVID because of the possible impairment of the innate antiviral response. But they may have some application when used for the broad, nonspecific inflammation that drives organ damage. Most of these were not developed to treat viral infection. And in fact, they were developed to treat diseases where the immune system becomes overreactive or abnormally reactive, like rheumatoid arthritis, other autoimmune conditions, or autoinflammatory disorders like gout, or diseases where some component of the immune system proliferates abnormally, like some types of lymphoma. Or they work like broad immunosuppressives like corticosteroids, which hit the immune system at whole, a whole bunch of different pathways. And publicly and privately funded research have invested really heavily over the years in the development of these drugs for chronic conditions. And the amount of investment in these drugs has completely dwarfed any investment that has been made into the development of antiviral medications, you know, outside of HIV and C drugs. And as a result, our tools of medications that we have on hand that are already FDA approved for some indications is heavily weighted towards immunosuppressive as opposed to potentially effective antivirals. And so I think that that is part of the reason that they're being used and why, you know, trials of these immunosuppressive agents have proliferated the way they have. Let's dive into the conversation of this immunomodulators. My understanding is that there are several of them that are currently under evaluation for use in COVID-19. And 
just listing it off from reading, I see the interferons, you mentioned interferons, you mentioned corticosteroids, you also mentioned, and maybe we can talk about anti-IL-1, anti-IL-6, some kinase inhibitors. From your perspective, are those the general buckets of immunomodulators that are currently under evaluation? Yeah, I would say that covers it. As far as the medications that are immune boosting, it's mostly the interferons. There have been a couple small randomized trials thus far on different interferons. And in a press release, interferon alpha is FDA approved for use in hepatitis B and a variety of other virus-driven diseases, including condyloma acuminata, which is caused by human papillomavirus, Kaposi's sarcoma driven by human herpes virus 8, HHV8, and we used to use Unifron Alpha also for Hep C. Now Hep C, Hepatitis C treatments have completely changed. Interferon Beta is also an FDA-approved drug with anti-inflammatory effects, and it's approved for use in multiple sclerosis. And then there's some investigational agents, including Interferon Lambda and Kappa. Interferon Lambda is a type 3 interferon. It seems to have potent antiviral effects without driving inflammation as much as the type 1 interferon. It's sort of slower to turn on and slower to turn off than type 1 interferons, and it's being studied for use in COVID, as well as in viral hepatitis. So the interferons are, I think, a pretty fascinating group of potential therapeutics in COVID. A couple studies, one from Hong Kong, a couple from Iran, and then another one from the UK looked at interferon beta. Three of those were subcutaneous interferon beta. One was inhaled interferon beta, and I think a couple were open-label, and one of them, the inhaled interferon beta, was placebo-controlled, double-blinded trial. And, you know, as a whole, they did suggest that interferon beta, given early on, might have benefit in COVID. The inhaled interferon beta study, we know about from press release only. I have not seen a preprint of the data itself. This is, you know, a unique feature of how we're operating in a COVID world. We are making lots of decisions by press release without the full data. I was actually going to ask you about that because I think you mentioned that earlier, kind of by press release. So let's talk about this new reality. It sounds to me that you're getting, we're all getting some information around these studies from press release. How has that impacted how you look at the data and how you do work? For the drugs for which there's no FDA approval and, you know, it's being trialed in this setting, it may not change things that much because if it's not available, you know, outside of clinical trials, then we still have to wait for the data. We still have to wait for approvals and so on. It changes things in, you know, becomes sort of controversial how to deal with it in situations where the drug is FDA approved for something else. So it's on the shelf. You know, we have it readily available and we get a press release that says that, you know, these people did a trial and it looked like it was helpful and we have very little other data. And there's a COVID patient now who might fit that inclusion criteria, but we don't really know much more about it. And we're just used to being able to dissect the data before we really have a change in our practice. And now, you know, I think that there's no right answer. I've seen from my colleagues who all very smart people, some of whom say, we need to still wait for the full data before we change anything about our practice. We, need, we can't do anything differently for this patient right now. 
or the patient who comes after this patient until we have the full data. And that's our responsibility to the patient. And others say, we have to do something right now. We know that in some context, you know, we don't know all the details, in some context, this drug has been helpful for patients with this disease. And here's a sick patient in front of us. We have enough justification to use this drug. And, you know, lots of other people in between. There is no, I think, right answer. And I have seen at least one instance where a press release at 8 a.m. changed management by noon that day, even without the full data. And I think this is an uncomfortable space for most of us, especially infectious diseases doctors who love to gather all the data and you know, sift through everything before making a decision. I hope that the information keeps coming. You know, certainly it's not that we don't want all this information and we don't want the press releases and that we want to wait for the full data on everything. We do want to know about it. But it does create a tension, I think, within ourselves that how quickly do we change our practice based on this information? I think we wind up having these discussions of risk benefit. So is this a therapy that has potential downsides and how big are the potential downsides? Based on the mechanism that we understand, does it make sense to use this drug in this context? Is it an incredibly expensive medication with a limited supply, or is it something that is widely available and quite inexpensive? Quite a number of these immunomodulators are very expensive. There are some that are in clinical trials that are FDA approved for something else that are in the range of $20,000 per dose. And I think that we have to have some pretty solid justification to pull out a medication like that, especially since immunosuppressives also expose patients to risk of infection. And they already have an infection. So, you know, I think that we need to have pretty solid ground to stand on before we layer on something that will impair their immune system. We have seen from some of these studies of immunosuppressives that there is probably some increased risk of bacterial infection, so bacterial pneumonia, and in some cases, fungal infections, fungal pneumonia. Um, so we could also be doing more harm than good. Dexamethasone turned out that in a large study that, and in this arm, they enrolled 1,000 patients in the UK in the recovery trial. Um, there was a mortality benefit that was primarily seen in severe and critically ill COVID patients. It didn't seem to have that effect in patients with moderate disease. And in fact, there was actually a trend toward possible worse outcomes when it was used in patients with moderate disease. And so this goes to, you know, the importance of what stage are you using these immunomodulators, how you need to pick your patient population very carefully. And there have been other studies also looking at steroid use in COVID, some of which have been positive studies and some have been negative. So it's not an entirely clear benefit that you get from steroids. But there was enough in this study that showed that six milligrams daily of dexamethasone reduced mortality at 28 days out versus usual care. And with the greatest difference in patients who are on mechanical ventilation. And this is great news, you know, because at the time people were studying and continue to study all kinds of really expensive immunomodulators, and most of which would be out of the reach of COVID patients in most of the world. And it was great news that dexamethasone could be an effective immunomodulator because it's inexpensive 
It's widely available globally. It's a few dollars per dose here and hopefully even less expensive in resource-limited setting. And it gives us a treatment option in later and more severe disease. Extrapolating from antiviral treatments in general, early treatments before severe disease seems to be the best window for giving antivirals. So, you know, drugs are directed against the virus. And I think in general, we're expecting that that will probably be the case for various antiviral therapies, including remdesivir and convalescent plasma and antibody therapies. But when there's evidence of severe inflammation, then it may be too late for some of those antivirals. And it may be risky to be giving interferons that boost the immune response. And so that steroids can probably help the patients who benefit less from antiviral therapies and in whom we would have concerns about using interferons is great. And it also underscores that there's probably different stages of the disease that you know, steroids are probably helpful in severe and critical illness and potentially harmful in moderate disease. So the recommendation currently is that it should be used in patients requiring supplemental oxygen. The other group of drugs that I wanted to talk to you about are the kinase inhibitors. And I wanted to ask you from your insight, what is the rationale behind the use of kinase inhibitors for the treatment or for use in patients with COVID-19? It is another group of immunomodulators. They are thought to be safer than some groups of immunosuppressives because the risk of infection may not be quite as high. They also don't last as long in the system. They're orally administered. And I think we're talking about the JAK inhibitors, the Janus kinase inhibitor. They work by inhibiting Janus kinase, and the Janus kinase functions by activating cytokine receptors and generally promoting inflammation. And so they're another group of anti-inflammatories. It's concerning that, and you know, a number of experts have been concluded in the beginning that they can also inhibit the production of type 1 interferon. And so they may actually inhibit viral clearance. There is a known increased risk of herpes zoster from the varicella virus and HSV or herpes simplex virus. They also can impair lymphocyte proliferation and cause neutrophil counts to go down. So there have been concerns from the beginning about whether they would be helpful or harmful. Again, it will probably turn out to be a matter of the stage at which they're used. One of them, baricitinib, was then studied in ACT-2. ACT-2 is the NIH-funded adaptive clinical trial for COVID that you know, looks at one therapy. Then once they finish that study, they then enroll for another therapeutic and so on. So it's you know, layering therapeutics one on top of another. And ACT-1 was on remdesivir versus placebo. And once we saw that there was an effect from remdesivir, ACT-2 was remdesivir versus baricitinib plus remdesivir. And there was a press release, of course, just last week. I think it was on September 14th, in which they announced the top-line results. And actually, it was the manufacturer of baricitinib that released this information. And as far as I can tell, I haven't seen much from the NIH itself about the results of this study. And the only thing we know is that it met the primary endpoint of reducing time to recovery in hospitalized patients by one day. And there were 1,000 patients enrolled. And it also met a key secondary endpoint of day 15 clinical outcomes. And that's pretty much all we know so far. So, you know, then the question is, is a one-day difference? Yes, it's statistically significant. Is it clinically significant? Is it enough that it would change our practices? 
especially since, and this goes for all the immunosuppressives, now that dexamethasone is pretty much standard of care in patients needing supplemental oxygen, and dexamethasone and all corticosteroids are already immunosuppressive, do we want to layer on another immunosuppressive when the benefit may be sort of marginal, but it may significantly increase the risk of infection? We don't know. We're concerned that layering these immunosuppressives on each other would increase the risk of infection. I wanted to ask you about interleukin-6 inhibitors. And I know that there, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are two classes of FDA-approved ones right now. There's the anti-IL-6 monoclonal antibodies, and then there's the anti-IL-6 receptor monoclonal antibodies. Is that correct? And are these classes of drugs also being evaluated for COVID? And if so, can you talk about what's the rationale behind it and what kind of data do we have on its use for patients with COVID? The anti-IL-6 medications were used initially just off-label, you know, people trying them out because there were these patients in front of them who had evidence of really marked inflammation. In some settings, in some countries, you can measure the IL-6 level very quickly and easily. Here, we tend not to do that as much as we do C-reactive protein, which is downstream of IL-6, and so CRP turns out to be a pretty good marker of IL-6 activity. And in some studies, they reported that IL-6 levels, when really high, were predictive of bad outcomes, of mortality. But in some of these studies, IL-6 was the only cytokine they reported. And when others looked at other inflammatory cytokines, they found that also IL-1 was up, CNF-alpha was up, you know, a whole bunch of other inflammatory cytokines were up. And so it wasn't just an IL-6 story. But nevertheless, IL-6 is elevated in many of these patients and does seem to be associated with or seems to be a predictor of bad outcomes. What has been sort of a recurring theme from some of these immunosuppressive, these immunomodulator medications is that they seem to sort of shut down the fever. They may reduce the inflammation, but they don't necessarily improve overall outcomes. And so are they just putting out some of the flames of the manifestation of the infection without actually changing the course of the infection itself. So these will hopefully be answered over time. There's tremendous research and the tremendous work going into understanding all of this, but also the complexity of not having all of the data, as you mentioned, and how does it impact clinical practice? The last group that I wanted maybe for you to touch on is the IL-1 inhibitors. And curious to see what your insights are on the use of IL-1 inhibitors in COVID. The IL-1 inhibitors have been looked at also because of this thought that there is a cytokine storm going on in these patients. There are scientists who have looked at and compared the level of cytokines, so you know, IL-6, TNF, IL-1, among different conditions including ARDS and sepsis and cytokines produced in other respiratory viral pneumonias, including influenza. And I found actually that in COVID, the level of cytokine production is not as high as in some of these other conditions. So perhaps it's, you know, a, I wouldn't say inaccurate, but overly broad term to say that there's a cytokine storm going on. So that said, People are also trying other FDA-approved agents like the anti-IL-1 agents because, again, they're in our toolbox. We have them on the shelf. 
you know, people have said this patient's really sick, let's try it out. There have been retrospective cohort studies, you know, prospective cohort studies, but we still have very little data on how these agents would go in COVID. In the case of something like dexamethasone, a corticosteroid, that I'm sure we will talk about and has yeah, been no, let's, heavily. Let's jump into that. Yeah. Look, I think yeah. that's the second bucket, corticosteroids. I know that there are some guidelines right now with the CDC, I think, around the use of dexamethasone. So how are we using it right now for COVID? I think that the dexamethasone data makes the bar for any other immunosuppressive quite high. You have to really justify not only the cost of these medications compared to dexamethasone, which is very inexpensive, but also the risk of adding infection risk in a patient who's already in front of us because of an infection. Thank you so much for sharing those insights with us and sharing kind of what's in the toolbox right now around immunomodulators. So, and any thoughts on the future direction of immunomodulators and COVID just as we wrap up our conversation? I think that there is a lot of enthusiasm on early use of interferon in various forms. There is some enthusiasm about mucosal application by spray or inhalation of interferons to boost the antiviral response. And I think that there is enthusiasm to use these in combination with antivirals. I think that we will be using the immunosuppressives more in later critically ill disease and using it very sparingly, if at all, in early disease. So hopefully we can come up with regimens for each stage of disease and also come up with biomarkers to tell us what stage of the disease somebody is in, in addition to just their clinical parameters. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was brought to you by Stanford CME. To claim CME for listening to this episode, click on the Claim CME button below or visit medcast.stanford.edu. Check back for new episodes by subscribing to Stanford MedCast wherever you listen to podcasts.